Drop off the kids or put them to bed. Turn on Childish with real life friends and podcasting virtuosos Greg Fitzsimmons and Allison Rosen. Laugh about the struggles and joys of parenthood. Grow closer to your children. Learn something useful or not. Maybe feel less alone. And maybe even put the spark back into your love life. Childish is for people who are parents or had parents. If you had no parents, maybe check out WTF with Mark Marin. Subscribe to Childish. New episodes coming soon wherever you listen to podcasts. Childish, oh shit. Last time I checked, I was still a kid. Childish, childish. This all freaks me out a bit. Childish, oh shit. How can I pet when I'm still a kid? Childish. Hey everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am here with return guest and someone I'm delighted to see after all this time, comedian, writer, actor, Kevin Allison. Now, I have publicly stated that my goal in the new year, which I've only decided was my goal starting around March, is to do better intros because oftentimes I just jump right in with guests. But Kevin, you sit back while I dazzle you with with your credits. Go for it. You know him as a member of the legendary sketch show, The State. He went on to create the super popular uncensored storytelling podcast, Risk. A collection of stories from the podcast were turned into a book last year. uh, And super famous names that you know well have been on the podcast and are in the book. And we'll get into all that. He's also been on Reno 911, Comedy Bang Bang, the TV show, or maybe also the podcast. Mm Mm-hmm. Both? Yes, both. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flight of the Concords, and um, he created the Story Studio, which I b- we're going to get into that too. Believes, I believes, I believes it teaches people <laughs> how to tell stories. You got it. I got it. <laughs> I, I think we're. I think I'm. I think I'm done. Yeah. No. That I'm was tired. fabulous. That was. <laughs> I feel like I'm about to receive my award. Yeah. I know. Maybe. See. Maybe I need to tone it down because it does sound like. Let's all welcome to the stage the man that we all. Well, maybe they did all come here to see you to hear you. Hello. I hope so. Hello. Welcome. I know you're in L. A. for a week, yep. right? Yep. 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 But you reside in New York? That's right. I, I'm in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Nice. I lived in Brooklyn at the end of my New York stint. I was in Carroll Gardens. Oh, nice. It's nice there. Not as like... doesn't have as much cred and coolness as Bed-Stuy. As Bed-Stuy, right, right. You didn't have Biggie Smalls throwing block parties over there. No, but I did go <laughs> to some uh, of Biggie Smalls house parties. In Bed-Stuy, well, not, I did, not his, but I mean, I went to some parties in Bed-Stuy. Oh, nice, Is nice. it a similar vibe still? The vibe Oh, back- no, it's becoming very gentrified, oh, and okay. that's also, it, it, like, there are literally protests about it in the street sometimes, you know, people about feel like... About the gentrification. Yeah, people feel like the landlords are kind of shushing people out of there, so... I see, by yeah. raising the rent. Yeah, it's, it's an, you know, it's the never-ending story. Right. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Because I know that I would be like... Yeah, I don't want this to lose character, but ooh, Whole Foods. Oh, I, 
I have never not been the guy who's living in, you know, I've always lived in neighborhoods that were mostly Puerto Rican or Dominican or black, you know, uh, because yeah, I don't know, I, I'm more comfortable mm-hmm. in a neighborhood where there's like a mix, you know, where, where, where it doesn't feel like it's all one race. Right. And yeah, I, I just feel like it's unavoidable that when something is gained, something is lost. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I hope that the community can can figure out a way that people aren't getting cheated, you know, aren't, aren't getting pushed out, and that the culture isn't like totally evaporating around there. Like there's some amazing jazz clubs and stuff like there, stuff like that around there that I hope we can find a way to preserve. You know, right? Yeah. So what brings you to L.A.? Big career stuff brewing? Yeah, stuff I can't really talk about. We are, we've are we always been interested in the possibility of doing something television-related with mm-hmm. Risk. And so we're we're out here kind of exploring that right now. That's yeah, exciting. Yeah. 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 It's, it, Risk is about to be 10 years old now. So we started the podcast in 2009. And I'll tell you, it's it's become my life. It, you know, it, it, it totally changed my life and we now have like 1300 stories that have been on the show and like 432 episodes. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot. And, and it's kind of become this thing where the podcast for the fans of the podcast, it's, it's a very important part of their lives Mm -hmm. because People tell true stories on risk that you're just not going to hear on like NPR or or other, you know, what you're you're used to the storytelling shows that are okay to listen to when you're driving the kids to soccer practice. You know what I mean? But risk, I mean, it is so uncensored, and and what it means is that sometimes you're listening to absolutely beautiful stories, and sometimes very funny ones, but sometimes you're listening to terrifying shit, you know, like cannibalism, murder, you know. Some of the kinky stuff that happens on the show is really, you know, joyous and life-affirming, and then other stuff is like, oh my fucking God, what are they doing? <laughs> have there been well this is two questions in one no it's just two questions uh have there been stories pitched to you that you are like it's it's too much you don't want and then the question folded into that was what i wanted to to ask you uh what is the process for putting together an episode right there have been stories what my main concern is is this storyteller coming to us from a place of compassion and wanting mm. to share a story so that the listener might be enriched somehow, you know, that it will resonate with them emotionally and they can get something out mm. of it? You know, if someone comes to me and they're like, I just want to talk about what a bitch my ex-wife was, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> nope, not going to happen. And if someone like, like, for example... There are people I've talked to who have committed murder or or have gone to prison for other sorts of crimes. And when I talk to them, I have to listen through whatever PTSD or through whatever narcissism or through whatever denial might be going on to say, has this person processed this mm. enough to be able to speak about it with emotional intelligence? So, yes, there are cases where I'm like, 
okay, that's definitely a jaw-dropping story. Right. But we're not here just to present shocking shit. We're here to present stuff that's, like, really going to be moving and that we're going to feel ultimately better for it because mm-hmm. you've been so honest with us and you cared about the other characters in the story. Even the stories where, for example, someone will... Like, for example, a woman who will have escaped from, like, a murderously abusive partner... Um, it will will know we'll see that she has enough forgiveness and and like you know mastery of the whole thing to be able to speak about that person as if he's not just a monster mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. like like she'll be able to talk about that person as a three dimensional character right you know? Uh, and then what was the second question? What is the process of putting together an episode? Oh, yes, yeah. Well, it's difficult because we record so many live shows, and then we record a lot of radio-style stories, too, that are just private, the person talking to me in my apartment or over Skype. Uh, so we basically put together an episode the best of what has come down the pike. So, for example, we've done six shows in March, six live shows. Wow. Yeah. And Uh, are you personally at all of them? No, I'm always at the one in New York. Uh, David Crabb hosts the one that's once a month in Los Angeles. And then I'm always out on the road. So I just did a show in Madison and Milwaukee and Indianapolis and Cleveland and Cincinnati in the past, like, whatever, eight weeks. And what we'll do is we'll announce on the podcast, hey, Cincinnati, we're coming to town in about four months. Pitch us your stories. Then we start going through them. And then we really start winnowing them down, what we're really interested in. And then it is a real process of, like, getting on Skype or the phone with these people to assess is this person crazy? <laughs> are they lying? Uh, you know, uh, do, do, are they going to regret having said this? Mm. You know, is their family going to be upset? You know, we have to like weigh all of that stuff. We do allow people to go by fake names, mm-hmm. you know, um, because what we're really interested in is the emo- emotional truth of the story. Um, but yeah, we, we do have to be very careful about who we're putting on stage and make sure ultimately that they're happy with how it all turns out. Right. Right. So like what percentage do you accept? Would you say? I, oh, what percentage of the pitches? Yeah. Oh gosh. We usually, I would say we get about 20 pitches per show when we come to a city and we only accept four. And how frequently do you feel like people lie to you? Because I know from being on shows that that take calls from listeners, there's always that radar that goes up of like, this is a fantastical story and it works on the show, but my gut is saying it's not true. Yeah, you know what? I would say because Risk has such a reputation, because because the audience, the people who are pitching us are usually audience members or they're practice comedians or writers who like at least know the show's reputation. So they know that it's kind of a sacred space, mm-hmm. you know. Nevertheless, of course you're going to have some crazy sociopathic people out there who want to make stuff up. So there have been a couple of stories that we've, we have put out on the podcast where fans have said, oh, I used to be married to a narcissist and I think that that guy is lying. And all we can do is really like feel it out with our guts when we're going back and forth with the person. So yeah, it's difficult to say. I let people know that 
narrative, the way narrative works, we all fudge details because our brains actually work that way mm-hmm. in order to make emotional sense of our past. So little things like compressing two days into one or leaving a character who was there out of it or anything like that is fine. It's when you feel like a person is making something up out of whole cloth, like, oh, she said this to me, and it's some really striking line, and mm. you're like, wait a minute, why would she say that to you? Yeah. So there's a lot of questioning that happens. You know, we're always like, well, wait, what do you think your mom was really thinking? Like, what was she going after? You know, to put yourself in the other character's shoes. And if the person can't answer those kinds of questions really believably, then we start to like, Hmm, talk amongst ourselves of, mm, not so sure about this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then how much uh, coaching or back and forth or teasing out the story is there before the person deliver, uh, performs their story? You know, it's interesting because we have less coaching than the moth. You know, we don't go by, we don't go through things like line by line and mm-hmm. we don't require a person memorize it or even script the whole thing out because we really want to maintain that feeling that you're conversing with the audience. And we like the fact that there's some roughness to it, that stuff happens, you know, a person will break down crying or start laughing or forget where they are and the audience will help them out. And, you know, so we like that risk feels kind of rough edged that Mm -hmm. way. But at the same time, we do want the person to have really thought through psychologically what all this means and and get all the details they want to get in there. So... They'll send us a person getting up on stage will have gone through at least two drafts, sometimes three, sometimes more. And we have story coaches. And in New York and Los Angeles, I'm comfortable with letting the story coaches do it all themselves. Mm -hmm. Because in New York and Los Angeles, we're usually working with performers Performers. or writers, right? And that's a different beast, actually, because – Performers and writers, the main concern is, oh, how is this person bullshitting in order to protect their persona? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? How is this person, like, uh, not stepping all the way outside of their comfort zone? Right. One of the very best times that a, a, a famous person did something where I was like, God damn it, that's how we want it done, was Trevor Noah when mm-hmm. he came on the show. Um, this was way before The Daily Show. It was... It might have been his first time in New York City, even. Oh, wow. He came to do the show, and we explained, you know, all of... He went over a story with me on the phone that was very funny about something that happened to him in high school. And then... When he was backstage listening to the show happen, he was like, oh, fuck. Wait, you weren't kidding. People really do bear their (laughs) souls on this show. He was like, can I change my story? Can I improvise something? And I said, sure. So he got up on stage and he improvised this story about his mother Mm. uh, was... Not married to, maybe she was married to him, but an abusive man who eventually shot her in the head. Uh, And it's about how he helped his mother, like you know, survive that, get out of that, get better, uh, and how actually she was an inspiration to him through all, through that whole process. 
And our jaws were dropped backstage. We were like, this is a hell of a thing to be improvising. Yeah. But it was a great example of, oh, okay, this is a this is a well-known person. I mean, you know, that, that he wasn't as well-known then as he is right. now. But still a but, <clears throat> public figure. Yeah, getting real, getting real. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so that's a concern in New York and Los Angeles is getting people like that to get real. But when we're going to places like Milwaukee or St. Louis or someplace like that, those people are usually fans of the podcast, so they already get the aesthetic of the show, and they don't have big personas. You know, the the main thing they're concerned about is family members mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So with them, it, I usually insist on being a part of the coaching process to make sure I've like helped people to feel comfortable and to assess. You know, can this person really do this and all that? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So I just listened to the most recent uh, singles episode because the way the format usually you have like a few stories in an episode yeah. based around a, th- uh, a through line or a theme but then you also put out just um, epi- you call them singles right and yeah. it's an episode that has just one story yeah and those are from our earlier years right and so I listened to the story from the woman Jen and I'm forgetting her last name oh Jen Gavlin yes yeah. she um, has since passed away yeah but it's a story about um, tell me if you think it, this is how you describe the story. It's about it's about her decision to not continue treatment for cancer. Yeah, yeah. And listening to it, knowing that she has since passed away. I mean, I think listening to it, even if she hadn't passed away, would be like ripping my heart out. But especially knowing that that she's no longer here, it was just like I felt like my heart was just ripped open. Mm. I, but it was so good. It was, it was so moving and so like. I feel like it's the stuff that all of us, whether we know it or not, want to be in touch with, which is like what it means to be alive, you know, thinking about mortality, uh, living in fear, all that stuff. Um, Do you feel like your heart is just ripped open over and over and over again? And I know that not all the stories are that sad. Right. But still. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like, I... I've been talking about this in therapy, like obviously in therapy, I'm constantly talking about risk, um, about how it has started weighing on me a little bit in more recent years. Um, I used to feel like I could really compartmentalize it quite easily, but... Yeah, lately I have been like, whoo, man, I I do have to acknowledge that I do take on a lot of people's stuff. And that's one of the reasons that we make such a point of including as many purely funny stories Mm -hmm. or purely like beautiful and lighthearted, like fun, like falling in love kind of stories on the show. Um, Because... It balances it out for everyone, including us. (laughs) (laughs) On our end, we're like, oh, my God, this is so fun. A funny story. Um, Yeah, so it's always kind of an emotional roller coaster ride, this show. Someone, a fan once said uh it's like an evening of risk or even an episode of the podcast is like joining an emotional nudist colony (laughs) (laughs) um but yes it has been weighing on me a bit recently and also i think about myself because my own persona on the show has always been 
uh, I, when I first started doing the show in 2009, I was like, oh, I can tell these because I'm a kinkster. And also, I'm like very friendly and Midwestern and polite, which mm-hmm. people don't normally associate with like dirty, you know, leather <laughs> kinkster guy. You know Is what kinkster I mean? a term in the community? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad I, you asked. I wasn't sure. <laughs> I didn't know if that was your own cute name for it or. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I'm able to tell these stories that are like, like very sexual and very graphic and very intimate, but ultimately kind of fun and funny and, you mm-hmm. know, like exciting in a way, which kind of led people to be like, oh, well, if he can talk about that, if he can talk about like drinking pee and stuff like that, then I guess I can talk about, you know, my child molestation or something like that. Um, but over the years, I've been like, wow, okay, so what am I not talking about? Mm. You know, what What are, you know, like, there are certain stories like the story of my marriage or, um, oh, the story of 9-11, you know, what happened to me on that day mm-hmm. that I have yet to tell on the show uh, because, you know, I realized even I, you know, have stuff that I've never dared to share. And it, it's not necessarily that I'm like terrified that something bad is going to happen, but it's just because I realize, oh, this is going to take a lot of thought and mm-hmm. heart and soul and time. And I'll have to go over it with my therapist and, and other story coaches on the show. And it's just, it feels, it, it all, it all feels like a little bit of emotional work that right. has to be done on these kinds of stories. So yeah. And because I'm working so much with other people on their stories, mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like, Oh, let's just tell another funny story about blowjobs and balls. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you feel like, like, look at me, I'm, like, into wild and crazy stuff. Not exactly your brand, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, do you feel like that, is that a defense? Is that a, like, look over here? Well, no. I feel like I've always thought that I was had a bit of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing about myself. I was raised very, very Catholic when I was, you know, in the 70s in Cincinnati, and I was a very good little boy. Mm-hmm. And I, at the same time, I was super aware, like right from the beginning of consciousness, that I was gay. I knew that I was physically attracted to other boys. Mm-hmm. And I knew what gay and fag meant by the time I was four, I think, four or five. And I was just terrified if anyone ever found out that I did like boys, mm. that everyone would, would no longer love me. I'd lose all my mm. friends and family. So I felt like I was a monster inside, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I grew up very thinking about this. Oh, my God, I have this secret. I have this secret. Can I ever come out about this? And indeed, when I was 12 years old, for the very first time, I tried coming out to my best friend. We had been best friends from first grade through seventh grade. And that was it. He, that was the end of our friendship. So oh, the no. first time I tried, it really did happen. You know, what, my worst fears. What happened? What's well, so funny because the movie E.T. came out. <laughs> and here's the thing. Because I had that I'm a monster inside thing, uh-huh. I could always, re- I, I always thought of, other boys that I was attracted to as being like beauty and I'm the beast, right? Mm-hmm. So so movies like The Elephant Man or, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon or Phantom of the Opera, those kinds of stories I always totally got. Mm-hmm. Um, so E.T. came out and he's this gross, weird little thing. <laughs> But I had such a crush. 
know, I was, yeah, I was 12 years old when E.T. came out. And I think that boy in the movie is right about the same yeah, age, Henry, right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Elliot. oh, Elliot. Elliot yeah. is in the, Henry, Henry Thomas was, real was the yes. actor. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I had such a crush on him that I felt like, oh my God, I'm identifying with this alien from outer space. <laughs> of course, other people don't see E.T. as like a love story, but right. to me, it kind of felt mm-hmm. that way. So I wanted to express to my best friend, the two of us called, I've written this story, it's on Amazon. You, uh, we also did a series on Amazon for Kindle, an audiobook called uh, This Can't Be Happening. The story's called Two Henrys. The two of us called ourselves Henry <laughs> as a joke throughout our entire childhood. And we were swimming in a neighbor's swimming pool, and I tried to say to him, because E.T. was out that summer, all the kids were talking about it. Yeah, it was it. huge. Yeah, everyone was yeah. seeing it repeatedly. Um, and I said, you know, I think I had some different feelings than most people had about that movie. He was like, what do you mean? And I said, um, I think I felt differently like about like the Elliot kid than most people felt. I, I don't remember exactly what I said, mm-hmm. but he kind of got it. Yeah. He kind of like, he was like, oh, I think you're telling me you had a crush on that kid in the movie. I mean, he didn't say that mm-hmm. out loud. Instead, he just got out of the pool and said, you're disgusting, and oh. walked away. Oh, my God. And that was the end of our friendship. We were no longer talking to each other. Oh, the, this, the, But the story has a happy ending, because okay. we... Everyone in our school knew that the two Henrys were no longer talking to each other. So the faculty, like everyone kind of ended up taking sides, Mm -hmm. right? Then when student council president elections or student council elections were announced, uh, everyone put their names in of who wanted to run for what. And then they announced it over the PA system. So they announced for president... Me, Kevin Allison, and the other candidate was him. So I was like, oh my God, (laughs) the two Henrys are running against each other. Um, And it's funny because he actually, well, I don't know if it was him or someone on his campaign. (laughs) His Carl Rove or whatever. But someone on his team started putting little stickers around the school that said, Kevin Allison is a bisexual. So it was a smear campaign. They had stickers made? This is is 1983, right? So yeah, little stickers around the school and the faculty were like, oh my God, ripping these things off and trying not to talk about it. And I was terrified, but I, I, I decided I, I'm just going to kind of ignore this. Mm-hmm. And then when the the speech speeches day came for all the political speeches, the rally, he got up and he gave a very good political speech about these practical things that he wanted, you know, like, <laughs> like, like you know, a new soda fountain or mm-hmm. whatever. And I got up and I knew that the, the phrase cool beans was becoming like the thing in 1983. I, there's so much about this story I love. <laughs> so I just led the entire school in it. I was like, when I say cool, you say beans. And everyone's like, cool beans. And 
<laughs> oh it won God. everyone over and I won the election. Oh, that says so much. <laughs> <laughs> about how things work. Yes, about the true nature of politics. <laughs> but anyway, no, we did eventually uh, become friends again once we were freshmen in high school. <laughs> did oh, Cool good. Beans win him back? <laughs> no, no. It wasn't Cool Beans that won him back, but eventually we did become friends again, yeah. Did he ever... Did you guys talk about it? Oh, my God, yes. We called... He decided that that period that we had just lived through should be called the darkness. (laughs) 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 And it's funny because... I tell this story, I've told it on stage before, parts of it have been on risk before, and he is now a journalist, so he's like, this story needs serious (laughs) fact-checking, you know, he's like constantly like, I don't know, I think, he wants to record a podcast episode with me where he literally goes through and fact-checks the thing sentence by sentence, and it's really funny because he did this with another one of my stories once about something that happened in sophomore year of high school. And when someone does that to you, it's fascinating because you're like, well, now wait, I really did remember Mm -hmm. this little thing as happening this way. But other people will have wildly different memories about why something happened or what happened afterwards that can be really interesting to take a look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that Rashomon thing where because of people's psychologies and memories, people construct stories of what happened to them in the past in different ways. Right. And every now and then I'm perfectly happy to say, oh, you're probably right about that. You know, like the very first story I ever told on risk is, uh, it's in the risk book. It's called ham and samurai. And it's about the first guy I ever hooked up with in a sex club when I was about 18 years old in New York city. And I, when I took this guy home because I was so like, I, I, I was like, I don't know how to have sex in a sex club yet. I'm going to take you home. So we went home and he ordered me to tie my sneakers to my balls. It, it turned out like he was kinky and I was like, what is going on? He was yelling at me like, put those shoes on your balls. He wasn't coming anywhere near me. He was standing like 12 feet away on the other side of the room and just barking orders at me. And he wanted me to tie my shoes to my balls. And I did. And I was just having no idea why I was doing this. And it was very uncomfortable. Yeah, very I mean, pinchy. so many questions. Like, both shoes, were they tied to each other? Were they? I can't. They were, they were Converse okay. sneakers. They were very So, pinchy. like, fuzzy dice hanging from a... <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. At least they were, con- like, they were Chuck Taylors, a little lighter. Okay, that's good. They were lighter, yeah. Yes, yeah. The way I say it in the story is they, you know, like... They're bad for your feet because they have no arch support, but they're also pretty rough on the balls. <laughs> That's Tony Thaxton. Did I? I didn't even introduce you, did I, Tony? Uh, I don't think so. I was so. Right. It, my, you know what? My New Year's resolution that kicked in in March should be to include you when I introduce, because otherwise people are like, "Who's this other voice in there?" <laughs> Well, Sorry. They should be ris- listening regularly. Yeah. That's been right. Here for a bit. That's right. Okay, back That's to the right. shoes and your balls. Well, anyway, the point of that story was it wasn't until like five years into risk being out there when I was I walked down Ludlow Street where all that took place and I was having memories of like you know my old days in my twenties and I realized like wait a minute 
those are two different guys in that story. Oh. The shoes on balls guy is not the guy that I met at that sex club that night. The shoes on balls guy I met at Wonder Bar. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the guy was like so like I yeah it's, right. it, yeah. So anyway, it's just interesting to see the way that your brain can like you know skip over details for you but it what, works was there drinking or substances involved? oh my god okay. yes yeah <laughs> that clouds things as well um there's there i there's so many directions i want to go um okay well so you mentioned therapy yeah. when we last talked which was 2012 you had been to therapy you had had four different therapists but you felt that you hadn't really clicked with any of yeah. them but it sounds like things have changed yeah you know what what i finally did was a friend of mine melina williams is another member of the kink community uh there's a movie about her called the artist and the pervert which mm. is amazing it's a documentary uh, but she's also told several amazing stories on risk we were having lunch one day and she said, you know, there's this thing online called kink aware professionals and it's people who do various things, life coaching of various sorts or therapist or whatever, but they're people who have knowledge about or, or won't pathologize you mm. because of your being kinky. So I found this guy and yes, he's a really, really good therapist. You know, it's interesting because he's my age, he's gay I know he's also kinky because he writes about it all the time. You know what I mean? Like he's published books and right. stuff like that. So it's interesting. Like sometimes I worry a little bit that there might be some enabling going on mm. that I deliberately sought out a therapist who was so like me right. that it would be more like a mirror than, you know, like someone really pushing back. Um, yeah, prior therapist, I always felt like there was like a parental thing happening, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, like I had a therapist, a Jungian therapist when I was around about 30, who was rather sex negative, actually, and reminded mm -hmm. me of my mom in that way. So there, that was, you know, like there was, there was definitely tension between us because of that. Right. I went, she once said to me. Listen, I don't judge. I have no moral judgments at all. I'm just speaking practically from an objective point of view about things. And I was like, okay. And I told her about this sex club that I was going to, like, you know, had been to, like, the night before. And she said, the next time you go to that sex club, you might just want to imagine over the doorway the words, abandon hope all ye who enter here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that sounds a little that's, judgmental. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's like from Dante's Inferno. That's the, the most judgmental. The gates of yeah. Hell. Jeez. <laughs> she also once she's like, "You are you're a little too obsessed with the anus." I was like, "Yes, yes, I'm definitely obsessed with the anus." She's like, "Here's what I want you to do." <laughs> Go home and write 300 metaphors for the anus. And so I was like, okay, great. So and she, she didn't want the pen to leave the page. You know, she wanted me to just like, just keep writing metaphor after metaphor for anus, which, which does really become challenging, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but it was like this Walt Whitman-esque, you know, like, you know, ranting and raving, just all this colorful imagery and very anal, all of it, of course. 
And when I brought it back, I was kind of excited because I had kind of gotten a kick out of it. And yeah. it kind of made me horny. And she, she was like, well, how do you feel? I was like, great. This is so, so fun. She was like, oh, no. I was like, what? Oh, no. She's like, no, I wanted you to exhaust yourself. I wanted you to get over this. And I'm like... Oh, no, honey, there is no getting over it. (laughs) Yeah, I wondered what the purpose is. But that's like, that just seems so, here, I'm going to judge your judgmental therapist. It seems so wrongheaded. It'd be like saying to a guy who's, it'd be like saying to a guy who's into breasts, like, you know, go home and write 300 metaphors for breasts and thinking that that, okay, he'll reach the end of that rope. It's really weird. It reminds me of uh, Abducted in Plain Sight, where the guy claims that his therapist said, oh, I should be sleeping in your daughter's bed with her in order to get over my pedophilia. You know, like like some of the things that people come up with are just obviously crazy. But do you feel like the, the going to sex clubs or the kinkster stuff, like, is that having a, a negative effect on your life? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. Now that I'm 49, I, I, the latest story that I've told on Risk is about how, in certain ways, I've mellowed out over the years. In certain ways, I've, you know, like, I don't drink like I used to or do as much like I certainly don't do party kind of drugs like I used to. And I'm much more interested in one-on-one experiences than sort of, you know, the crazy, kooky, big um, uh, kink event kind of experiences. But I still like to go to those things uh, to continue learning, to continue like broadening my horizon, to try new things, to just meet other people and connect. Um, So, yeah, it's interesting. Like, when I first started the show... I had this persona that I kind of wanted to help build of, hey, I'm such a kinky guy, but so open about it. But over the years, it's been interesting to see that, oh, well, I'm not totally open about everything. And that's, there are reasons for that, you know, protecting other people, Mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to ruin the intimacy that I have with with folks uh, because they feel like it's going to be on the show, right. you know. Um, but also, there are some things that you really just do want to keep for yourself, you know, or or just make sure you're super ready. You know, sometimes I'll talk to my therapist. I have this need to expose myself. You know, I do have this, like, I do feel... Same. I, I feel like if I tell you about all the stuff I've done, then you won't ever reject me for having discovered something about me. Oh, I'll, so you're I'll, beating I'll have, them to the punch by... Exactly, exactly. By uh, telling them I'm everything. controlling it. Mm-hmm. I'm controlling what you know about me. Right, right, right. Um However, I'll sometimes say to my therapist, gosh, I really want to talk about this thing just because of my tendency to want to share, you know? And he'll say, maybe you could wait five or ten years on that. Maybe you could create, maybe you could write that story and hold on to it for a while. Mm -hmm. Because I think he knows the same thing. Because I do the very same thing when I'm coaching people for risk. Someone will tell a story and I'll feel like I'm bumping up against PTSD Mm -hmm. or. The person just doesn't seem to be able to make real sense out of what happened to them. And I'll tell them, hey, 
maybe you can come back to us in a couple years and maybe, you know, it'd be a good idea to at least hash that out with a, a, a loved one or a counselor of some sort and kind of work through it and, you know, let it marinate for a while. And indeed, there have been a few people that have come back to us a couple years later and been like, thank you for doing that because I feel like I'm much more ready to tell that story now. Mm-hmm. There are stories of my own that I now tell differently than when I first started telling them uh, just because I have changed. But also sometimes things happen in your life where you're like, oh, this is an interesting new coda to that story because mm-hmm. it like reflects back on it. Yeah. When you say sometimes you feel like you're bumping up against PTSD, what does that feel like? Well, it's interesting. A person will have been through something very traumatic. Like, here, I'll give an example. A woman once... Pitched a story to us where um, she was sexually assaulted in, like, a wooded area. And when she sent us the first version of it, it was all this description of the trees and the flowers and the walking down the road. And then, like, it was kind of like a blip of getting trying not to deal with the actual scene itself Mm -hmm. of what happened. And... When that happens, you just have this sense of, oh, okay. I, you know, I can let a person know, oh, we really need to you to go there for the, the worst part of it to the extent that you can. But if a person shows signs right away that they're, that they're already really hesitant about going there, right. then I can tell them that, but also suggest, and you know what? You don't have to share the story right now. People have shared, like, the oh my gosh, the very first radio style story, because we also do these one-on-one mm-hmm. recorded stories. A gal came, and she was like, oh, I want to talk about this insane orgy weekend that I once had when I was in my teens and she's sitting across from me and I'm, and we're recording this and indeed it is one of these lost weekends where a bunch of teens have had way too much alcohol and ecstasy and whatever else and there's this guy who's kind of dominating and like telling people what to do and yada yada and as she's telling me the story I can see her eyes start to get glassy Mm -hmm. and then start to see that she's uncomfortable with what some of what she's remembering. Mm. So when we finished recording, I said to her, I'm going to send you this recording and we don't need to do anything with it on our end. You know, like you can listen to it if you want and just take some time, get back to us when you're comfortable and see if you want us to like, we can always re-record, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that the person themselves is like, yeah, 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 I really... And indeed, she did not. She, she like, left feeling like, oh, yeah, I was remembering some shit that, like, had not remembered until I was mm-hmm. sitting and telling it. So, yeah, she had kind of realized that, that that was an abusive relationship she was in right as she was telling it to right. me. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. How do you decide which ones are radio style and which are live show? Well, sometimes a story feels so intimate that I worry that the person might not be able to get it out in front of an audience full of people. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So that's often the case. 
Uh, other times, it's simply that the person is in Britain or Seoul or something like that. And it's like, well, we're going to have to do this over Skype. Um, but also, the radio South stories can be any length. Like, some are over an hour long. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the ones told on stage, we really want you to get it done in 15 <laughs> to 20 minutes at most, you know, yeah. so that the audience doesn't start losing their minds. I think that's really great, the concern that you have for the experience of the person telling the story and making sure that they're comfortable with it. Um, I come from, I have a journalism background, so mm-hmm. I worked at magazines for a long time. And with magazines, and I just feel like most magazine editors the way they feel is the person knew they were talking to a journalist. They knew there was a tape recorder. So there's no taking it back once they say it. Right. And repeatedly that would put me in a tough position as the writer of a story because people would open up to me and I'd be like, Oh, that's great. This is great. This is gonna be great for the story. And then I put it in and then I'd get a call or an email. It was probably usually a call, not an email. Um, because this is back a ways, uh, from someone saying, like, could you not include that? Or, you know what, could we not? I've decided I don't want to talk about that or whatever. And then I'd, I would want to be compassionate to them. Yeah. And I would go to my editor, and they would just be like, no, sorry. we're, we're And it would be, like, too late to stop it. And I always felt bad, but I, I felt bad about it as a human. But I think I kind of justified it as, like, I sort of, because I... We ha- because I had to bum them out in that way, I kind of like justified it and just like took on the beliefs of the editors about like, this is how it is. So then when I started podcasting, um, you know, people would, a similar thing would happen, not a lot, but they would, they would get in touch after an interview and they'd say, could we take this out? Yeah. And my first instinct was, no, you knew you were on mic. Yeah. Um, but now I've come around totally to like, yeah, of course, we can take out whatever, yeah. which is like a kinder way to be. But I think that there probably could be someone in your situation who would be like, you knew what you were getting into. We're, we're keeping it. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because we're seeing so many documentary movies coming out now where I think also in it, like when you're making a documentary, you're, it's similar like there's a journalistic feel to it, mm-hmm. but you're not necessarily a journalist. Like, you know, like, the, for example, the Finding Neverland thing. I think the, yes. the reason that that I was all for that movie because I felt like, oh, that did such a good job of honoring mm-hmm. the experience, mostly of these two guys and just getting more and more and more intimate with them without feeling the need to give that journalistic, but some people thought he was great, you know, that kind of <laughs> right. thing. You know what I mean? Right. Which um, cra- I think it's crazy that that's a knock against the movie from people. Like, we don't need to hear someone sit there and defend Michael Jackson. Who wasn't there in the yeah, room. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I do think that if you are working in what is more plainly a journalistic mm-hmm. context, like you're writing, you know, something for the New Yorker or the New York Times or something like that, I think it is kind of expected that you're that you would try to have more of an objective point of view. So, right. so yeah, I think that there's a lot more leeway in these personal projects like right. we're talking about. Yeah, right, right. I want to talk to you guys about OpenFit. OpenFit takes all of the complexity out of losing weight and getting fit. It's a brand new, super simple streaming service. It's fun to say. It's very alliterative. Super simple streaming service that allows you to work out from the comfort of your living room in as little as 10 minutes a day. Uh, 
Don't be one of those people who pays a gym membership and then never goes because it's too much of a pain in the butt. You can, this is, this takes the place of that. It's better. Amazing trainers and classes, open fit classes, which you stream from your tablet, your uh, internet enabled device, your phone, your what have you, computer, etc. Uh, open fit classes are led by some of the most effective and engaging trainers in the world. Sculpt your body with Andrea Rogers, founder of the worldwide sensation Extend Bar, or get in crazy good shape with Hunter McIntyre. Named by Sports Illustrated as one of the top 50 fittest athletes, these trainers <laughs> know how to get you results quick. Uh, it's super simple. Forget all the complexity and stress around getting fit and just press play and work out on your schedule. Um, this is also great for people who travel uh, because you can do it in your hotel room. You don't have to put your workout uh, routine on the back burner when you're out of town. Just take it with you. Um, and results you can see. Lose up to 15 pounds in just the first 30 days. Flatten your abs, shape your body, and look and feel great. And also, OpenFit has a ton of great content uh, and educational articles and stuff like that. that's one of my favorite aspects of it. OpenFit has changed the way I work out. And with my code, Allison, you can join me on a fitness journey personalized just for you. Again, use my code Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N. Unlike the way my guest spells his last name, the more common, it's just A-L-I-S-O-N. And start... (laughs) (laughs) We'll catch up with that thought later. And start using OpenFit for your journey to a healthier life. Right now, during the OpenFit 30-Day Challenge, my listeners get a special extended 30-day free trial membership to OpenFit, where you can lose up to 15 pounds in 30 days when you text Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N, to 303030. You'll get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts and nutrition information totally free. Again, just text Allison, A-L-I-S-O-N, to 303030. Allison to 303030. Okay. I want to get into the book and the the story studio and all that stuff, but I do want to ask, and the state, because Tony's, I mean, I was a huge The State fan, and I know Tony probably has questions burning. Um, And we have questions from listeners, so there's a lot to get to in the next little (laughs) bit. But I have been wondering, what is the most, to you, like, what is the most transgressive story that's been on the podcast i didn't know you had cannibalism happen uh yeah you know it's interesting the the first three that came to mind but 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 i'll focus on what i think was really the most transgressive one there yes there was one where a a gal discovered that her father was into cannibalism so so that was that's in the book as well um there's one where a a guy gets into a kinky relationship with another guy and they keep pushing the envelope of what they're trying exactly exactly and it's really a love story and it gets more and more intimate and it's really an interesting story about consent Mm -hmm. and negotiation because bit by bit they're doing wilder stuff but it ends with uh shit eating so that it was definitely like people wrote in they were like i cannot believe that i was crying and (laughs) felt like i was in love uh, with a story that ended with shit eating but probably i feel like the most explosive or one of the most explosive stories we've ever run was by melina williams who i mentioned before Mm. She has it's in the book as well, but I I I, I especially like the podcast version because you can hear her real voice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's called Slave, and it's about how when she was young, 
as a young black woman growing up in the projects in Harlem, she started to realize that she had this kind of kinky interest in the whole BDSM idea of being a slave Mm. and then got interested in what they now call, quote unquote, race play, where... Mm. The dominance and submission is a role play that is deliberately playing with racial, mm-hmm. you know, tensions and whatever. So she started playing these games with some other kinksters who were very well versed in this stuff and and who were able to do it in a kind of tongue in cheek way, like, you know, playing like the plantation owner and she's right. and they're like deliberately like mucking it up, like, you know, gone with the wind ridicu- right. ridiculous. Right. Like make it a cartoonish. Exactly. Um, but then she meets a fella who wants to do it very, very seriously, and uh, they agree that it's going to be sometime. It's going to happen at this at one of these big kink parties they attend, and but they don't really say when it's going to be. He says he's going to ambush her, and and is she like delighted by that? She's very intrigued by that idea, and she figures that they're both very experienced kinksters, and they discuss a, a safe word and all of that. The it's funny word. how this put like I'm 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 feeling uncomfortable just hearing you oh, talk yeah. about it. It's oh, like you, putting you such know, a pit in my stomach. You know, stomach. it's going to a bad place. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, she has the safe word read and everything, but months go by, and they do see each other at various kink events, and it never happens. Then she's at this party once. And she does get a bag thrown over her head and dragged into a dungeon space. And he's got a big bullwhip and he's calling her the N-word. And and he's very much like, he's actually from the South. So he's very easily like tapping into that. Mm. And she goes into what some kinksters call subspace, which is when you go into a little bit of a trance. It can especially happen if you're blindfolded or something like that, where... You lose track a little bit of actual reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why safe words. Is that like a is that an ecstatic place or is that a um like a bad place? It was a well, it's usually an ecstatic place. It's usually like like uh, what people want to happen mm-hmm. if they're really submissive, to go into a little bit of a trance and to feel like, oh my gosh, this is really happening, you know? But in her case, Something just went wrong. Something just like she she really lost track of that this is not reality. Oh, like she was kind of maybe even hallucinating in part and definitely blacking out mm. during sections of it where she would come to and be like, Wah. and she couldn't remember her safe word. She couldn't remember that she had access to that. And the scene was going on for. Hours. Oh my god! And, and now was he getting off on it? He was he, he he was getting off on it, and he wasn't understanding that she wasn't. You right. know, he just felt like, "Wow, we are doing some great twelve <laughs> years of slave acting here." You know what I mean? Oh god! And so he was getting uglier and uglier and uglier with her, and she was seeing just how awful it can be when someone is not recognizing someone else's humanity Mm. and so she felt like she was really staring into like the fucking history of our country you know what's in our psychological dna and she was absolutely traumatized by this experience um and you know at a certain point this is a big kink party right and at a certain point the whole party just ended and everyone was watching this like 
what is going on here? And when... Oh, so were there people around the whole time? There were people there. And she saw them as these white people who aren't helping me, who are enjoying watching my suffering here. So anyway, um, you know, the party host was like, "Uh, we got to wrap it up. So they untied her and brought her down. And it was when he first approached... In kink, you're supposed to... The dom is supposed to give aftercare after, Mm. which is bring you water, bring you blankets, caress you, bring you down, you know, help you breathe, yada, yada. And when he came to her to do that, she just flipped the fuck, like, don't come near me. You know, she was screaming and yelling, don't let him near me. And people were like, oh, this was just as bad as we thought it was and thought it was just acting. So anyway, she tells this story and she ends it on this note of, you know, in the years since she's made up with that guy, they've hashed out what actually happened and she's just become a much more careful negotiator Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, I, I think that, I think that she actually has not dipped her toe very much into the race play since then, you know, but she's still a very kinky person but i think you know yeah she might have had her fill that night but anyway she ends the story by explaining to you that there's a psychological dimension to a lot of kinky play especially role-playing kind of stuff and you have to really think about that first because you might tap into something that's deeper than you surface on the surface understand so that's what that story is about it's called slave and yeah Whenever anyone listens to it, they're like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. But she's I feel so, like that just having heard a bit of it. Yeah, she's so smart and funny and, you know, insightful about all the layers of what was going on. So she's brilliant. And the uh, storyteller whose father was into cannibalism. <laughs> yeah. S- sorry, my brain's not letting me let go of that one. <laughs> Had he actually, like, it's, for someone who's into cannibalism, does this world offer a, uh, an opportunity? Of course it does. Well, the that's dark the web, thing. Right? She, she, well, no, this was long before the, the, I think this was before the internet. She found oh. little pamphlets in his oh my God. closet, like telling you how to prepare things, et cetera, et cetera. And what kind of person would make the right kind of meat, you know? I just have, so... I have to go listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, that one is on the best of risk number twelve. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and by the and way, it's in the book. <laughs> listeners, no one, and I, I, I find myself often issuing this sort of uh, disclaimer. No one, need, if if you have details about the dark web and cannibalism and all that, I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't need to know. So tell us about the book. It came out last year. It did. It did. We've been so excited about it because, you know, what happened was people started writing into us saying, can you send us transcripts of the show for because I'm deaf or whatever. And there was a point at which I actually just decided, well, let me read through one of these transcripts for a story, a story about attempted murder that had been on the show that I had heard so many times, but when I read it on the page, I was like, I'm noticing things in this story I haven't noticed before. I'm noticing little ways that like this sentence kind of rhymes with that one or, or, or the way this seems almost like a symbol that was in between mm-hmm. the lines. So I realized, oh my gosh, this really does work on the page too. And at about that same time, a woman approached us um, 
who is now our book agent, Liz, she came to a show and she was like, I listen to your show every time I visit my girlfriend, which is every weekend. I have to drive up to Connecticut and I listen to it religiously and I am convinced you could have a great book with some of these. So we put this book together and it, it Hachette Publishing put it out and it's about 37 stories. There are some of the famous people who have been on the show like Dan Savage or Mark Marin are in there, um, uh, Lily Taylor, Aisha Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um but it's mostly just, you know, our, our very favorite stories and then Q&As with the authors as well and an introduction in which I tell how this whole thing started. Yeah. So it's been great. We've been loving it. Did you ever consider or do you ever think uh, about being a therapist, whether you would be a good therapist? Because I'm thinking that someone that's like dealing with the psychology of people as frequently as you are. I'm not saying that you should leave what you're doing right, to become right. a therapist. I'm just saying like it, it seems sort of therapy adjacent. I think that I could like like if I had to give up what I do, I I suppose I could do that. My sister just became a therapist and she's like, "Oh my god, it's not nearly as easy as I thought it was going to be." You know what I mean? Like it, she's in Cincinnati and she's finding that, "Oh gosh, you know, like it's so funny. It's so money-making in any yeah. field." You, you you underestimate, you know, how difficult that's going to make things. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess that would be one of the things that I would consider doing if I had to give up what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I will put a link to the book in the episode summary, but it's called Risk. What's the full title? Risk. Uh, true stories people never thought they'd dare to share. Okay. Um. The Story Studio. Yeah. What is this? That So shortly after we started Risk, I realized, oh my gosh, I enjoy helping people you know, put their stories together so much that we might as well start teaching classes. And But also, as you know, a podcast, you, you need other revenue streams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so we started the Story Studio, and at first it was just for people who were interested in telling stories at shows like Risk. But then people started coming up to us being like, I want to be able to like get up at my business meeting and like convince my staff that we need to take on this new project. How do I do that? So we started crafting storytelling for business classes as well. And now kind of a lot of the money that my company makes is these workshops that we'll do for like Pfizer or Google or yeah, where they want to be able to speak more humanly in that because because they're very invested in this like corporate speak Mm. and they're used to speaking in terms of data and systems and processes and whatever and some of them more than others need a real like breakthrough of no 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 you have to be telling the story of people having lived experience that they're emotional about you know Mm -hmm. and it's fascinating to see how that clicks in people's heads and how how much more effectively they start to communicate when they get that it's funny the thing about the storytelling is it's a lot like improv where they say you really should take improv classes for like two years straight before it's going to become like muscle memory 
we have to teach people the same principles over and over and over and over and over again until they finally remember it and just start to do it automatically. Mm-hmm. You know? And what are some of those principles? Well, that you have to take us there. That you can't just describe what happened in an explanatory way. You can't just give us the Wikipedia overview of what mm-hmm. happened. You have to like remember the look in someone's eyes, the feeling you got in your guts, the actual dialogue that you spoke out loud, the temperature of the room. Like when something significant is happening in the story, you have to have sense memory just like an actor of the moment, the dramatic moment, and flesh it out and help us to see it. That's the biggest one that people just forget over and over again. Um, But also... You have to remember that a story is ultimately about shifting emotion, mm-hmm. you know? So you have to think in terms of your beginning and your middle and an e- and your end, oh, what is an experience where I felt one way at the beginning and then lived through something that made my feelings start to turn a corner, mm-hmm. you know, and to shape it around that, that right. turn. Right. Um. So I recently lived through an experience where my emotions changed about something. Um, I had a really rough experience uh, giving birth to my first son. Mm. And I mean, it was just, it was a very long labor and like everything went wrong. My epidural didn't really work. He had to go to the NICU. Um, Yeah, they had to do like chest compressions to revive him and everything turned out okay. Uh But I believed that childbirth is this violent traumatic thing and i felt like i had glimpsed a real truth about what it is to be human that people don't talk about and that it was like amazing to me that this is how i can't believe this is how everyone enters into this world through this crucible of crucible of like violence and trauma um and also like i'm never ever doing this again and then, you know, a few weeks later, then I'm never, ever doing this again, started to dissipate, but I still walked and I knew that I had experienced trauma and I had postpartum depression as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I knew that I didn't have the experience that most women want to have, mm-hmm. but I still felt like there's a fundamental truth about it. Um, and my therapist, so then I, you know, I got pregnant with my second kid and I was very, very anxious oh, about childbirth again. Yeah. And I really wanted to have a C-section. Like, let's just, uh, cause I had a 41 hour labor before and they induced oh me and stuff. And I was God. like, yeah, I was like, let's just, cause I heard these stories about C-section and it's like, you go in and an hour and a half later, you're holding your baby. And I'm like, I love that. All that sounds good. Um, and my therapist kept saying that if I could have, like, she thinks that if I had a vaginal delivery and it went, differently it could be very healing for me Uh i I really i heard the words but i didn't understand how that could be right but anyway i did have a a a different hospital different doctor um much different experience it was a really good experience Uh uh-huh and i realized that it really delivery really doesn't have to be violent and traumatic it's hard but it's i also felt like there's something very magical and now in my head it's really like one of my best memories of anything i've lived through and it's just weird how that how this belief that i that i held onto has really changed and like i really 
in my soul feel it differently now. That's fat. You should come on risk and tell that story. Maybe I will. Yeah, maybe I should. That that, that <laughs> is awesome. Yeah, we've had a we've had women come on the show before and talk about postpartum and. You know, in one case, a, a woman told a story about having to go to being sent to a mental institution mm. afterwards with her postpartum. Like she was, you know, at risk of harming her child. Right. Um, but I love your story because here's here's what I love about stories: they leave a lot of room for mixed emotions. Mm-hmm. They leave a lot of room for like contradictory nuances about things and that story is loaded with that there's the initial you know some some risk stories will start off funny and then turn out you know terrifying right but but that one's interesting because it kind of starts off traumatic and then like blossoms into oh here's going through a very similar thing but having a totally new experience Mm -hmm. of it you know kind of like seeing the other side of a very similar experience and it's really weird how this most this you know uh, childbirth really kind of erased a lot of the pain of the earlier one. Wow. I didn't even wow. know that that could happen, you know? That's but awesome. it's, yeah, it really, like, I feel like it feels magical. Like, I feel yeah. like I've been suffused with magic a little bit. That's um, fabulous. Which is nice. Okay. It's so, kind of, oh, it's also yes. like get back on the horse. Yes. You know, like if you, you have an accident on a right. horse, get back on the horse. Right. <laughs> right. Which actually, I used to horseback ride and I did get back on the horse after I was thrown some weeks later. But then my sister got thrown and then my parents are like, the Rosen girls do not ride horses anymore. <laughs> and I have, I have followed that rule into my, uh, my old age. <laughs> um, okay. So we have some questions that uh, listeners sent in. In on Twitter and on Patreon. I'm on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go for that. Okay. So first, um, the Patreon question. Do you want a jingle? I do. I forgot I even have one. <laughs> All right. Thank you. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for Okay, Whitney C. would like to know, what's his favorite song or movie from outside his culture? And you can define culture in any way. Oh, my gosh. What? Oh, jeez. Uh, outside my culture, I would say, and I talk about this in... I, okay, I, I talk about this in one of my stories that the it, it's not it's not just one movie but it's the movies of of kurosawa the the uh, japanese mm-hmm. filmmaker um when i first i think i first saw rashomon when i was like in the seventh grade and it was very unlike anything i'd ever seen before because i'd never seen a non-english movie before mm-hmm. And also, it's set in the samurai era and all that, and it it was just like this view into like another universe. But also, it's so 
gorgeously shot and so complex with all the characters. If, if you know, Rashomon is a murder happens in the woods and five people are there and all five have totally different memories oh, of that. what happened. So now people use that word mm-hmm. to describe that phenomena. Um, but also, Toshiro Mifune was in it and I thought he was fucking sexy as hell. <laughs> I know you love the Asian men. <laughs> he left an impression on me. So yeah, so so but over the years I've like gone back to those movies and really appreciated how like now I kind of I'm kind of wowed by the fact that some of those old movies they do move slower than movies today. Mm-hmm. And so you almost have to see them in a cinema where you're forced not to be distracted by other things that might happen on your laptop or whatever. And you get kind of hypnotized by the methodical, thoughtful crafting of the story. And so, yeah, I've, I, to this day, I remain a big fan of his. Yeah. All right. And then a couple questions from Twitter. M- Mahin Ruby says, please talk about the orgasm noises not being able to be used in the Stamps.com ad because I am so curious. And that Stamps.com song to me is the single funniest audio clip in existence. (laughs) Well, what happened was there was a fella who I I found on FetLife. FetLife is like Facebook for kinksters. And what does Fet stand for? uh, Fetish. Oh, yeah. He was this gorgeous guy an alvin ailey dancer oh, wow. right and uh he he contacted me and he said i want to tickle torture you and i had never done that before and i thought it sounded kind of cute because of the word tickle mm-hmm. this is way long before that documentary is made about <laughs> tickling um but he tied me down to his bed and he seemed to have a great sense of humor so i thought oh this is going to be really funny he was like you're going to make a lot of crazy noises. So I was like, oh, wait a minute. I love audio. I love, you know, like I'm always making crazy Easter eggs and stuff like that (laughs) in the show. So I was like, why don't I like put my phone on and record myself while you're tickle torturing me? Uh, well, the, t- the t- it was far more torture than it was tickle. Mm. I mean, it. W- he tied me down to a bed, and I kept breaking those straps like the girl in The Exorcist because he was <laughs> he was being very violent. It was like um, uh, Guantanamo Bay kind of. He, like he, like he would take like a hairbrush and like rub the bottoms of my feet or or take his fingers and dig them into my groin area that's not tickling yeah no 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 it was just it was just just very intense yeah um but he did have a sense of humor and so i couldn't help but laugh a bunch of times so this crazy recording came out of it (laughs) that ended at the end of it all like he relaxed and like used a sort of a um what do they call uh, a prostate massager on me? And then I ended up having this incredible, crazy orgasm. And when the I the hand heard- gesture you made for prostate <laughs> massager is different than I expected. I'm thinking of the curve. There's 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 something called the Enjoy Pure One, which I've since become addicted to. Okay, uh, it works for men and women too. By mm. the way, anyway, anyway, anyway. This orgasm was so like loud and crazy. It sounded like someone being shot or something like that. <laughs> and so I decided I should start recording my orgasms. So I started recording my <laughs> orgasms. And okay, so we've always loved stance.com. They've always been one of our sponsors from like the very mm-hmm. beginning. But I, after a while, I was like, 
it's kind of boring that I'm always saying the same thing with Mm -hmm. these ads. So why don't I create a little song? And so I filled it with all kinds of crazy sound effects, the Stamps.com song. And (laughs) I snuck into it five orgasms. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and those are the Easter eggs you're and referring those are to. Real orgasms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then we had a show a couple of years ago where I admitted that those uh. orgasms are in that stamps.com song, at which point stamps.com was like, yeah, maybe no more song. <laughs> oh, no. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, so we still have a good relationship with them. They're just like, yeah, please just try to stick to the copy. <laughs> that is hilarious um okay joe Mulder says not technically a question but any stories about the conception of making of or reaction to porcupine racetrack are most welcome (laughs) oh you know that's so interesting because i think of that story as being a learning lesson for me um you know tom lennon used to encourage me when we were in the state He, he used to say you and me, we should write a musical together sometime because he knew that I kind of grew up on musicals and, you know, he's so multi-talented. He is one of those guys who can just like come up with a sketch in five minutes flat and, and it's a beautiful thing, you know, but I was so insecure when I was in the state. I just was always battling with second guessing thinking oh i'm not as talented as everyone else in the group Ooh, uh, if i do it it'll be too you know i want to make it sure it's perfect first and spend too much time Mm. on it so so i wrote a lot less than everyone else in well not everyone else but most other people in the group which meant that i got to cast less stuff in because the writer got to cast things so you know, it's interesting. If you're in a sketch comedy group, everyone has different talents. But in the state, whoever was the fastest mm-hmm. and most prolific writers, those guys ended up getting the most roles. So anyway, he used to always say to me, you love musicals. You're so funny. You know, with the way that you do little musical voices every now and then, we should write a musical together. And I never took him up on it because I was insecure and I was afraid of his big talent, you know? And the joke's on me because he finally decided, well, fuck it. I'll just write a musical myself. He wrote this musical, Porcupine Racetrack, which was kind of envisioned as a sort of catch-all parody of a bunch of kinds of musicals, you know, uh, My Fair Lady, um, uh, Les Miserables, uh, uh, Guys and Dolls. They're all kind of like the feelings of all those musicals are kind of referenced in it. And he came in to the writer's room. He had a yellow pad. He had just written it out on <laughs> this yellow pad the night before, and he sang it. And God damn it, not a word was changed the group all voted unanimously let's make that no matter what the (laughs) cost (laughs) and so a composer came and just listened to tom sing it and just arranged an actual arrangement around it andy blankenbuehler was a friend of mine from high school Mm. he was in my theater club in high school now he has two tony awards for in 
in the Heights and Hamilton for choreography, doing the choreography. Oh, wow. So he did the choreography for Porcupine Racetrack, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I hope that they mention that among his other credits. Yeah, <laughs> when yeah, they, should. yeah. They, they should. They should. Yeah, so that is definitely one of the state's greatest sketches. And it just shows that... You can't get too caught up in that insecurity, that second guessing. You, you have to just kind of let it flow. And, and if, if people ask you to, hey, let's collaborate on this thing, give it a shot. Try to let go of the second guessing. Mm-hmm. Improv classes later, after the state was off TV, improv classes taught me the importance of trying stuff out and not worrying so much that it's perfect you know like in any improv show you do on stage you say something no one laughs and you're like okay that was embarrassing and then you say something and everyone laughs and you're like oh okay great you know like the embarrassing thing doesn't matter anymore (laughs) so that's interesting had you not taken improv before did your improv training only come after? It's fascinating. The group, the entire state had no improv or comedic training. Like, uh, at we met at NYU in 1988. And at that time, there was no Second City in New York. There was certainly no UCB. Um, so there wasn't a lot of improv sort of education around or certainly any, like, sketch comedy education so we were just going off of the fact that as kids we had loved sesame street and the electric company and the muppets and once we got to like being six or seven years old we started liking saturday night live and monty python Mm -hmm. and just kind of made stuff based on what we remembered from all that yeah had most of you been in theater in high school like this 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 question comes out of my desire to know like were you guys comedy nerds were you theater geeks were you theater mostly yeah and you know that's one of the reasons that it was so hard to be the only gay guy Mm -hmm. in a group with 10 wait nine straight guys Carrie was the only woman in the group, and she was so badass. She was so able to handle any misogynistic jokes. Like, because it it was a group that had a roasting sense of mm-hmm. humor. You know, there was always taking everyone down a peg in order to, like, be on top with your own ego. And I was always the person who's just not good at that. Like, like I'm the insecure person who already, who doesn't have enough ego. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So when gay jokes would come up, I would be like, uh, have no response and just be mortified. And it had to do with the fact that all those guys had grown up being called theater fags Mm. because, you know, they had been in theater in grade school and high school, but were straight guys and didn't know how to deal with being called fags all the time. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, It's interesting. At this point, I've I've had a number of members of the state on this show, Mm -hmm. Um, and we've talked about the experience. And your description of it is a little, it's, it's more good with the bad than I, I mean, sorry, let me rephrase. It's a more, um, there were great things about it and there were also really rough things about it. Mm -hmm. I don't hear the other ones don't talk about the rough stuff as much. (laughs) Have they glossed it over or do you think, 
I think that what it is is that they're used to me being the one with the bigger mouth. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there are some members of the state who just don't want to do risk because right. they feel like, oh, God, what am I going to say that might come back to haunt me or what might my kids hear and that kind of thing. Then there are other members of the state who have done risk a bunch of times right. because they're like, oh, my God, I love talking like this. Yeah, no, no. I think everyone in the group is quite used to the fact that Kevin will talk about anything. <laughs> But everyone in the group does agree that we were like a family, mm-hmm. and we still are. Um, in fact, I'm hanging out with members of the state while I'm in town. Uh, it members, We're like members of a family in that we dearly love each other, and we have pet peeves with each other. And you know, whenever we have a little reunion show... Stuff starts coming out, you know, where, you know, little fights and stuff like mm-hmm. that, tensions arise. It's just kind of in our, it's a very, it's very hard to come back into such a well-worn relationship mm-hmm. like your own family yeah. and like be like, this time I'm not going to get mad at mom or whatever. You know right. what I mean? That kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Is there a certain person with whom you have little squabbles the most? No, I tend to be the guy who is, it was very, very funny because when we reunited to do Jack Black's festival, Festival Supreme, mm-hmm. we reunited, I don't know, maybe five years ago to do that. And, J.C. Cass is my um, uh, business director, offered to help out backstage with us. And so she was watching the rehearsals, and there was a moment where a fight broke out between a couple of members of the group, and there was some yelling going on. And J.C. said, oh, my God, I saw what you do. Like, I finally saw, like, how you operate in that group because you literally shrunk into a corner and behind a curtain when everyone was mad at each other. So, yeah, so I don't have beefs with anybody. I'm the guy who disappears. Right. (laughs) I mean, that sounds tough. Well, first of all, just to be in a creative group with 11 people, that's a lot of people. It's a lot, yeah. Like 11 extremely talented people, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that roast mentality... That sounds tough. Yeah. You know, I and in general, the when the group broke up, it was that was especially rough because that was kind of like the Beatles breaking up mm-hmm. in that it took like a year and a half or so of things like not working out and how, remind me how many years you guys had been together? We had been together for about 8 years uh by the time we finally broke up for real. And we really did feel like a family, mm-hmm. you know? So when and also we had promised each other that we wouldn't work on other major projects uh, without each other you know other major projects that might take up so much time that it would take us out of the group right, right? and certain members of the group had actually made great sacrifices along that had, had said no to well paying jobs mm-hmm. because no no I want to stay available for this group so when the group finally broke up in 1996 um there was a lot of tension and and you know little cliques that were mad at each other and stuff like that and i was i myself was i kind of i i feel like i was bitter at the whole group 
pretty much, you know, because I was the, I was the, can't we all just get along? Mm-hmm. And you know, I was the guy who like, when it didn't work out at CBS, I was like, why don't we just go back to MTV with our tail between our legs and say, remember those five seasons you wanted to give us? Well, we're back. Turns out yeah. we were not cut out for network TV. And everyone was like, no, we can't do that. That's going backwards. You know, that kind of thing. So I was, um, I was, kind of I felt scarred and bitter because I was the guy the dupe who did believe the state's um mantra that we're going to be together forever like the mm. rolling stones you know and that was kind of naive of me to fall for that even though we always said it um and then when it was all said and done I I became very antisocial mm. I like kind of avoided the group I became very filled with stage fright and anxiety about getting up on stage almost at all. So the group stopped inviting me to come to, you know, like, for example, like, you know, stuff like Wet Hot American Summer. um, I wasn't invited to be a part of because I had kind of become bitter and resentful and scared and kind of, you know, drinking myself into isolation, Mm. you know. And it was just the wrong time at the age of 26 to be doing that, you know? Right. That was the time to really, like, bounce back and figure out, okay, whatever needs to be done, I'll do. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I I think I look at young comedians now, and they seem to just totally get that. You know, they totally get that it's project to project to project. Uh, Yeah, so so I, I... I don't blame the group for the fact that I had like 12 years there after the group broke up where I was kind of in the belly of the whale, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it took a while. But it also took a while to realize that what I do, true storytelling, is quite different. You know what I mean? Like like there's a... There's a very different feel to what I do, and it took me a while to realize that, you know, mm-hmm. to come around to discovering that. Yeah. And wasn't it wasn't Michael Ian Black instrumental in like yeah. pushing you in that direction? Yeah. Well, the state because we were always so roasty with each other. I was the one when we were at MTV who was like, "Okay, we're kind of mean to each other a lot. Could we maybe have like a half hour at the beginning?" beginning of the workday where we sit around in a circle and everyone just says how they're feeling <laughs> and we can call it check-in and and people ended up loving it like it ended up being very very important for the group's health so we just constantly had check-ins from that point on mm-hmm. whenever we were doing work with one another and Eventually, because I was the member of the group who was all, everyone hung out with each other 24-7 except for me Mm. because I had my gay life, right? Like when everyone was hanging out at night, I was like, "Mm, I prefer to be with, you know, my gay family out there or going to the sex clubs or whatever Mm. and having crazy adventures. And so Tom Lennon would say, Kevin always has the best (laughs) check-ins whatever the fuck he was doing last night to report back on is a story um and so michael black way back then he used to you know we would do our studio recordings with the audience and everything and he used to like there's long downtime between you know cleaning up the set and putting up the set for the next sketch he would just go out there with a microphone and start chatting with the audience like a stand-up comedian he had no stand-up comedian experience but he was like 
here's an audience. I should start doing stuff. And everyone in the group was like, ah, he's such a egomaniac doing that. <laughs> but no, of course, that's what you do. You talk to your audience. Yeah. So yeah, I was terrified of that. Um, but he would always tell me, you should tell your own true stories in front of audiences. And I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> so 12 years go by. And there was literally a four four year period where I gave up on the performing arts altogether. I ran away and I tried to become a book editor, <laughs> which didn't work. And of course, it's another career field that doesn't pay you anything. So that didn't work. And I finally came back and I put together a one man show of four or four or five characters who had effed up their careers. Mm-hmm. It was called F up. And they were these big sketch comedy kinds of characters. And I was doing it at San Francisco Sketch Fest. And I was just bombing. Like, it was a 300-seat theater. And there were, like, 15 people there. But Michael Ian Black was one of them. And after the show, he said to me, Ah, you know what, dude? I gotta be honest with you. I think the audience wanted you to drop the act. Stop playing these crazy, kooky characters. Tell your own true stories. And I said, that feels too risky because I'm so gay and I'm so kinky, but I'm also so Midwestern and polite, but I'm also kind of absurdist and I'm also kind of intellectual and spiritual. It's too complicated and it feels like audiences won't get it, so it feels too risky. And he said... Hold on to that word, risky. Because when something feels risky like that, it probably means you're opening up to an audience. So they'll open up to you. So I was like, oh my God. I thought, what is the riskiest story I could tell? And I knew immediately it was the story of when I started trying to become a prostitute. (laughs) I did. I succeeded at becoming a prostitute for a very little while when I was 23 years old, before the state was on MTV. And so I called Margot Lightman at the UCB Theater. She had a show, a storytelling show. I had never done a storytelling show before or even seen one, Mm -hmm. but I knew they existed. So I said, maybe I can do this. And she was like, you've got to. You've got to tell a story about prostituting yourself. (laughs) And I, I, about a half hour before the show, I called her and I was like, um, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> I have to pull out. I cannot do this. She's like, dude, the audience is already sitting in these seats. Yeah. <laughs> you have got to do this. So I did it. And it was that night was transformative because I could, I could look into their eyes and see that it was resonating. I could feel this electricity between me and the audience. And it was different from doing these recitations of memorized monologues it was like conversing with the audience and they fucking loved it and afterwards they weren't just saying that was funny but they were saying oh my god well of course i've never prostituted myself but the emotions you described reminded me of this fight i got in when i was in the seventh grade you know when you tell a true story it resonates with people in very unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. They they trigger memories for people that really open up things for people. So I walked away from the UCB theater that night. I was walking down 8th Avenue away from the theater and I thought, that's it. Risk. That's the idea. I have to create a show where everyone who does it is stepping outside their comfort zone and telling something they never thought they'd dare to share in public. And the whole idea came to me that night. And it saved my life. I mean, it. it I went from, 
you know, facing eviction, like being deep in the bottle. Um, my marriage was on the outs. You know, I was, I was, I was in bad shape. You know, no, no savings, no health insurance. So I was in a bad place. Mm. And the show saved my life. It, it turned everything around. And just think, if you had, if she had said, "Oh, okay, I understand." Yeah. <laughs> Like, what would have happened? <laughs> That's wild. That is wild. I've never thought that before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the truth is, maybe, I I, sus- I suspect you would have been on this. You just would have done it a little bit. Yeah, a later. A couple months later. Yeah, 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 but yeah, still. Yeah. But you know, it's fascinating because I look back now and I realize, oh my God, there were so many signs throughout my life that I should be doing what I'm doing, you know? Like... When I was 17, I, I told a true story to 1,300 kids at my Jesuit high school that, like, moved the hell out of everybody. And the Jesuits were like, you know, you were a man for others that day. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Allison, it has been so nice catching up with you. Yes, indeed. Thank Such a you. pleasure. Tony. Yes. Do you have any uh, burning state questions that you would like to ask? Uh, I don't mean oh, to put you on boy. the spot, but I um, I just don't want to end the show it, with oh, you it's... being like, I needed to ask this. <laughs> uh, nothing burning. I mean, you kind of mentioned casually part of what I was wondering, uh, the whole CBS thing that went down. I know that I wasn't sure. So you guys actually left MTV to go to CBS. And exactly. It, it aired you shot something that aired once, right? We quit MTV as MTV was. We had we did not have good managers. Uh-huh. You know, we had managers who were like, you know, looking for that money and everything. And so we quit MTV. We were like, we're too big for our britches here, you know. And we went over to CBS. Now, Les Moonves was hired the week that our Halloween... They, they they said, here, here's a contract for three holiday specials. And if they go over well, you're going to series. Um, and so contractually, they were supposed to give us at least two more specials. But we did a Halloween special, and Les Moonves was hired that week, the Monday after it had aired. <laughs> and he was like, I don't have time to think about a bunch of kids doing sketch comedy. Just fire them. And that was it. <laughs> and, you know, and now we know a lot, of, a lot more about yeah, Les Moonves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but there's another thing. If you, if, if there, there's the details magazine thing. We also oh, yeah, later, yeah. Well, there was that one of the CBS executives was a uh, who was working with us who was overseeing our show was an old Archie Bunker kind of guy actually he looked a little bit more like Dick Cheney <laughs> and he said some stuff to us that was just flat out racist in our first meetings with him while there was a details oh. magazine journalist working with us so we walked out of that meeting kind of shell-shocked and we're kind of checking in with each other. Did he really say that? Yeah, I guess he said that. How do we feel about that? Are, do we want to work with this guy? And so the Details Magazine guy. He was with you in the meeting? He No, he wasn't with oh, us in okay. the meeting. He overheard us in the oh, hallways afterwards being a little yeah. shook about it, right? So he 
did some weird fact checking with us uh, when he wrote this details magazine article about us where he was like, hey, so and so in the group does confirm that this guy said such and such about black people. Uh, so can you confirm also, you know, uh, that like we in the group kind of felt like, wait, who said this to him you know we were all very like unclear about who had said what to the journalist but it went into details magazine and so sure enough we've already been fired from yeah. cbs but now we managed to get him fired too <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of weird because it felt like oh don't work with the state they're toxic you know if if you disagree with them they'll get you fired you know mm -hmm. like it was just a very weird thing but you know it, my father was the voice of reason about this i was like oh my god people feel like you know we have loose lips and maybe it was me maybe it was me who told the journalist i wouldn't be surprised if it was mm -hmm. you know and my father was like yeah well that guy was an asshole <laughs> yeah like it, it's not true <laughs> yeah exactly like nowadays we're much more like waking up to the fact yeah you say something racist you deserve to be you know to a be held to account for it that's like a very recent thought though which is so sad yeah <laughs> it's sad yeah. how much that it like how how novel and new that notion is yeah wild kevin thank you so much for coming on the show and for me i know that you're pretty busy this week so thank you for making time to do it um tell everyone where they can find you where they can find the podcast it's plug everything I am on Twitter at the Kevin Allison, also I guess Instagram, and you can find everything about Risk on socials at Risk Show, or just find us online at risk-show.com. Excellent, uh, Tony. Where where might we find you? I'm at Tony Thaxton on Twitter and Instagram, and a bunch of tour dates coming up. So. Excellent. And I am at Allison Rosen on Twitter and Instagram. Go to AllisonRosen.com for all sorts of information about everything relating to me, not just everything. You can do Google, Google for that. But um, I have a book out, Tropical Attire, Encourage, and Other Phrases That Scare Me. If you go to AllisonRosen.com, you can get more info about that and uh, click on the link. It'll take you right to where you can buy it. And I have another podcast um, called Childish with Greg Fitzsimmons. Check that out at ChildishPod.com or iTunes. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for being on the show. Listeners, I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen is your new best friend.